Welcome to Breaking the Mold, exploring the people and issues fueling business today. It's business time. It's business time. It's business. It's business time. And now, let's break the mold. Hello, podcast listeners. Welcome back to podcast number 13 of Breaking the Mold. It's me, Evan Roth, your host of Breaking the Mold. Dan Roth, co-hosting this week. Good to hear from you. Well, thank you for inviting me. This is, I love love the podcasting facilities you have. Thank you. And I love what you're doing with your voice. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You might um, have, uh, there's a throwback. There's back at episode four or five, you made fun of my voice for very uh, different reasons. At the time, it was around the holidays, I believe. It might have had something to do with drinking non-alcoholic drinks. This happens to do, happens to be a function of my uh, crew reunion that we had this weekend where I went back into my mode of being a coxswain, coxswain, and uh, in that uh, attempt to rekindle my youth, lost my voice. It reminds me a little bit of in your youth when you went through puberty at around eight. Well, you were in college at the time, so I didn't capture a lot of it, but talking to you on the phone, I remember your voice would crack a little bit. Yeah. And uh, it was funny because it was – I remember I'd pick up the phone. I was like, oh, I, at first I thought it was like a four-year-old kid calling <laughs> home by accident. And then I realized it was you and the voice would crack. And, and it sounds – so I'm so, so I've, I'm getting such flashback moments. This here. is great. This is the brotherly love that we got. <laughs> Dan, do our podcast listeners care about um, my uh, pubescent years? According to the mailbag, yes. <laughs> <laughs> half of the incoming mail has right. been asking about that. The other half has been asking for – us to rekindle our interviews, Dan. They love us. They love us, our banter, our back and forth. But there's also something to be said about bringing in an expert. And today we have an expert. We have Steve Ellis, founder of the company Who Say. That's W-H-O-S-A-Y. He's already been very successful having sold Pump Audio, but really his claim to fame is he's a rocker, Dan. The guy rocks out. And he has a British accent. (laughs) That's... That's what you need. Now, he's a social media guru. He kind of saw earlier than a lot of people the value of uh, social media, especially for celebrities. Yeah, yeah. Husay has a very modest ambition to change how famous people behave online. be interesting to kind of have him walk us through how to change famous people's behavior. I've tried to change yours for the better over the last uh, 40 plus years, and it hasn't worked, Dan. Our first segment here, Dan is going to be to talk a little bit about topic of the day. Topic is all over the headlines, Um, not Donald Trump, because we've been there, done that. We are going to talk about Apple and the FBI. Now, the question for us here as a business podcast, Dan, is why did Apple go to that extent? And let's start with my answer to that, because I like answering my own questions, which is I actually think they had a bigger game to play. Apple was trying to prevent the uh, future problem of having a federal agency telling them uh, what to do and how to do it. And in particular, because when I think about Apple's strategy, I actually don't think that in the future they will be a pure play technology company. I think that they will become a bank. And the first thing that they need to do as a bank is earn trust from investors, which means having a church and state relationship with the federal government. I'll explain why I think they're going to be a bank, but 
I actually think this was Tim Cook playing the long game, which is in the next 10 or 15 years, if Apple looks like that they are simply just a pawn for the federal government when they want, the federal government wants something to do, then there's no way that Apple is going to be actually be able to be a high-functioning bank. But let's assume that's true. Are banks at all protected? Do you, do you get the feeling when you put your money in a bank that the federal government can't look into what you're doing? This is in Switzerland. We know that there are rules. There's all kinds of, uh, um, uh, especially after September 11th, there are incredible ways to track where your money is going, and the banks are required to let the feds know when there has been an unusual transaction or to share documents or share information. If anything, I think the banks are, I, I assume that the banks are working closely with the FBI, the CIA, and, and other federal uh, agencies to give information that's maybe, required of them. Maybe, but the hurdle rate's high. And, and let me step back, which is here's why I think it's such an, a, the yeah, bank will be a critical strategy for Apple. Mm -hmm. They have $100 billion in cash right now. And they are buying back shares as often as they can. If they continue at their same earning trajectory that they're on right now, within the next five to 10 years, they essentially could buy back all of their stock and still have $100 billion in cash. The question is, what do you do with $100 billion in cash? You can't just store it under your mattress. And if it's not moving, if it's not earning any money, it actually hampers the overall earnings per share of the company. So it's no different than what GM did which they eventually became GM was a car manufacturing company and that as car sales slowed, they realized the only way to juice sort of their car sales would be by creating a financing arm to lend money to those consumers to buy their own cars. And eventually GM became a finance company and a car manufacturing subsidiary. GE, very same issue. As a result of being a finance company, they got into lots of other investments, whether it be mortgages, other types of loans. I don't agree with you. Apple is a consumer goods product company. They are made up of engineers and product managers and product marketers <clears throat> uh, who want to sell things that people love. And I could see them going into a lot of areas where they could put their cash into more use. I would be more, uh, I would assume that Apple would move into making cars faster than I would believe that they well, would move into being a bank. They might, but they don't have a car now, but they do have Apple Pay. You don't hear Tim Cook talking about Apple Pay when he gets up on stage or not going on not going on and on about it. If you look at what the best way to figure out where Apple is going in the past has been to listen very closely to what their executives say on stage. And when you hear Tim Cook talking about the iPod Pro and talking about the state of PCs, it's very clear that they want to double down on consumer goods. I think this is what their I think this is what their future is. And I don't think that if how do you anything spend, how do you spend hundred billion on consumer goods? If anything, well first before we get there, the answer is I don't know. But before we <laughs> before I tell you that I don't know. I also don't think <laughs> you, that you said I don't know and then, <laughs> that, then you're gonna explain it. <laughs> can we cut that part out? Um, I don't think that the uh, that I, I don't think that I think that if anything, this FBI issue is an exact example of why they wouldn't want to become a bank. I don't think they want to go down that regulatory path and have to be uh, and have to deal with the government on everything and become a heavily regulated industry. Banks are heavily regulated industries. Mm -hmm. They are even worse in Europe. Um, it is going to be a massive problem for Apple. And I think Apple has lots of bets everywhere. They have Apple News. Are they going to become a major news provider? I don't think so. 
They have the Apple Watch. Is that going to be massive? I'm not sure it is or not. It doesn't seem like it is. Um, but I just but don't see... But that doesn't see... undermine the Apple Watch. Doesn't that undermine your their consumer product company? Let's No, the Apple Watch is a consumer product. How can no, you say it's that, not? You say it's not being successful and yeah, they're not actually messing So they go on to a different one. They This is what they do. They try a product. It doesn't work. They go on to a different product. I think that they're more likely to use their cash to... to I could see them more likely buying Tesla than I could them using that cash to open a bank. Do you know something? <laughs> you, yes. Yes, I do. No, I, I we know are, nothing. We hear a break in the motor, breaking the news. <laughs> That's Apple right. is buying Tesla. <laughs> Dan, we should watch. I just got back from a lunch with Janet Yellen, where as she was speaking, the market was moving based on every line she had about her expectations for Fed policy going forward parallel to what we're doing right now. Absolutely. In real time, we're That's talking right. about breaking the news that Apple's buying Tesla. Tesla stock skyrocketing. In the meantime, we've got Steve Ellis here in the studio ready to talk a little bit about his business. And what reminder, is Apple going to be a bank? Is Apple not going to be a bank? What does the future hold? Let us know at Roth Evan on Twitter, or I'm Dan Roth on Twitter. You can also follow us both on LinkedIn. Search for us, Evan Roth, Daniel Roth. You're listening to Breaking the Mold. You can follow us on Twitter at BTM Show, or you can email us at btmshow at icloud.com. Now, more of Breaking the Mold. Welcome back to Breaking the Mold. As promised, we are delivering Steve Ellis, founder, CEO of Who Say, rock and roll star. <laughs> Steve is a serial entrepreneur, so we're just uh, promoting the most recent, uh, the most recent business and the success of that business. Who Say has gone on to be now the fastest-growing content marketing company, essentially making celebrities into media companies. Dan. He's I think that, do that for us. Yeah, I mean, I think that the the what's interesting about Hussein uh, is that instead, where the, where the celebrities would have been featured in magazines and newspapers and on TV, what Hussein does is actually turns them into the brand. They can get paid for all of this work, and yeah. it brings them into a social era, and also provides. My understanding is you can help clear this up is some maybe some guardrails or a helping hand around what it is they're sharing, so they don't actually go entirely crazy on Instagram, Twitter, um, and uh, and it's been wildly successful. So Certainly, you, certainly recently. Yeah. <laughs> and we'll, we'll back up even more as, as certainly as the custom here on Breaking the Mold. We've got some uh, a guest in the in the studio, which is we want to back up. What, what, what makes Steve's story successful is not just hearing kind of the, the conclusion here where he is today, but Steve is, grew up in England. He uh, was a graduate of an esteemed institution. Northwestern, no, no, that's right, that's right. He, he actually managed to, to get into the Ivy League School of Wharton, premier business school in the country. Donald Trump went there. Most <laughs> famous alum. Yeah. So, Steve, take us back. Sure. Early days. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, I have to say that, but recently I've been thinking about this because I am finally applying to become an actual citizen of the United States. I've been here 27 years. I am married to an American. I have American children. And I've been thinking that if uh, if I could consider my life successful under a single uh, objective, I would follow Warren Buffett's line that if you're born in this country, you already won the lottery. Mm -hmm. um, and I know I'm from a, 
a great country in its own right, England, but uh, I'm certainly grateful that I stumbled into this country and, and found a way to make it work for me and that my children were born here. Um, but for me, it was a total accident. I, I was in high school. I had a single American friend, and I'd already developed a bad attitude towards education by the time I was about 17 or 18. And in England, the prospects in those days, was, although it was completely free, was to go to a university in some bleak northern town um, and I'd already gotten the bug for music and, and, um, and didn't really find that enticing. So he was the one who suggested to me, hey, you know, you should try these American schools. And Wharton, I'd never heard of it, frankly. Um, I'd never heard of any of the schools, to be honest with you, apart from Harvard <laughs> and Yale. So I applied to these schools completely blindly never having even seen an American collegiate application before, which when I did finally arrive at Wharton, that enraged people uh, because <laughs> the amount of work they'd gone into trying to apply, I did handwritten you know, applications and all sorts of crazy stuff. And I think I, I made the cut at Wharton because they never had a British Jewish person apply to that school ever before. <laughs> uh, you fit the one profile yeah, box they I needed made to check. The, I made the quota because I'm sure I'd never have made it if I had to compete with the likes of you guys in high school with, uh, with all the extracurricular charity life-saving work that you guys probably did um but it did get me into america and and uh, right from the beginning i was so raw uh in coming to america i remember i arrived in philadelphia and the the taxi uh brought me to the big quad dorm where everyone was backing up trucks of furniture and unloading couches and tvs and i i arrived with my bag I'd been in boarding school already for four or five years, so I had like two shirts, three pairs of trousers. <laughs> and people were like, what is wrong with this strange English guy? Why didn't he bring furniture? I mean, it was... So right away I was introduced to America, and I, I tell my favorite Wharton story, although there's many good ones, which is I arrived, I had no idea what the school was, the prestige that people assigned to it. That it, In those days, as you remember, it was really all finance. There wasn't much entrepreneurial right. stuff spoken about. And I sat in the room of these... And it, the 300 or so kids I get accepted into this underground program every year, so it's really a fairly small number of people. They introduced the CEO of Wharton. He walked in, and in front of this auditorium, he said, well, first of all, let me welcome you all to the greatest business school in the world. And the place erupted, and I was like, oh, damn, I'm in the wrong place, man. This is not going to work for me. <laughs> this kind of enthusiasm is this not going to work for me. This pep rally does not work well with the British subtlety. Yeah, but uh, but uh, it was great. Listen, I, I had a great time in Philadelphia. I consider it my birthplace as an American. So I was trained in, in West Philadelphia and still suffer through all the sports teams that uh, I learned to love while I was there. But so was, where did music fit in? Well, I was already obsessed with music. And the truth is, I'm sure that, you know, Bob Dylan and uh, Bruce Springsteen and Neil Young are probably more responsible for me applying to Wharton than, than anything else. I wanted to come here because that was all I cared about by that point at 17 or 18. Um, and I spent the better part of 10 years doing that. I mean, I was, I don't think I, you know, I maybe was a short order cook for a small period of time and I tiled floors and painted houses, but I didn't really collect a W-2 for 10 years in any <laughs> real way. I, you know, bits and bobs of work and mostly manual labor while I tried to get record deals. And I, and I got a record deal in the South when I was 21 with an independent label. And that was a horror show, although um, we did record in Daniel Anwar's studio in New Orleans in 92, 93. Um, you know, but that was my... It just goes to show you, if in America, business is going to find you one way or the other because just watching the disaster that that business was and then moving to New York and I started another band and I got a kind of record deal with Columbia Records, which, you know, that was the label that, you know, yeah. all the people I loved seemed to be associated with. That was an even bigger disaster. 
Um, although that's where the inkling of you know the future started to come in because having gone through the first disaster with the independent label where the businesses they started fighting with each other and then the money disappeared I basically read the contract that Columbia gave me and my lawyer said I have never had an artist read the contract <laughs> in all the years I've been doing this and I remember the call we put into Sony and said you know how much do I actually make on every copy of record I sell if I even sell a record and he was like um, uh, I mean you couldn't have had a more attempt to sort of you know <laughs> not answer the question um, but I read the document and I found I can I was able to read legal documents hmm. like it was this strange you know uh, uh, sort of translation that I could see the the way they'd written it deliberately to hide the price of the retail versus the wholesale and breakage and there was all sorts of weird stuff in there. Mm -hmm. So you know when that deal fell apart as it did fairly quickly, um, I had a long-suffering uh, wife already at the time and she'd already been long-suffering. So by now, because it's 25 years or so, she's very long-suffering. She had decided that she would like to start a family, and she offered me the opportunity to be the one to do it with her. Uh, <laughs> but I had not contributed anything up until that point to the rent or any of the vehicles that I'd borrowed from her. I was a standard musician. The background often. music. Yeah. You were able to contribute to, you know, the, the, yeah. you know, the yeah. notes. Right. Um, Hard to pay bills that way. And I was bartending at the time, so when the Columbia deal fell apart, it was pretty rough in that they, they did write me a check, but they asked me to fire my whole band, and it turned into this whole this comedy. Um, but when that fell apart, I realized, I was like, I was like, what are you doing? You know, the very essence of, of what mattered to me was not to take instructions from other people. That's what I thought music would be. And I realized, actually, if you're going to be in the business of music, it's going to be the opposite. All you're going to do is belong to other people. And um, at the same time with Alicia wanting to, you know, my wife wanting to have children, I was bartending. I sort of took a year of bartending, probably the greatest year of my life, you know. Um, no responsibilities in a wonderful village near where I live now in upstate New York, Tivoli, New York. And, um, you know, once she once she had our firstborn, I went from bartending and two weeks later I started Pump Audio, which was the first business I started, which was a direct result of having read that contract. I mean, we basically, I licensed one of my own songs to a TV commercial for a few bucks and I needed to make a living. Uh, the objective was simply to privately educate my children. That was what I basically <laughs> said. This is all we're doing this business for. Um, and I started the idea of repping other musicians who'd been dropped from the label and their content for TV commercials and for TV shows. And one thing led to another, and and um, the business started to grow, and I basically built a catalogue of unwashed, unsigned musicians like myself and that we would license the TV shows. And technology then started kicking in. I didn't own a computer until 2000. I specifically had avoided them. Um, and I started to deliver the, the music on little hard drives. Um, and sort of would, in a guerrilla style, we built some software to live on the drive that would allow people to search through the music. And I would go to audio and video editors who were working for TV networks here in New York, and I would give them the drive for free. And they would plug it into their Avid, which in those days didn't connect to the internet. And next thing you know, the music would be, you know, on TV shows. <laughs> and so I sort of back-channeled my way into forcing TV networks to pay me for the music. Right. Because it was better music, right? Before Pump, they'd had, you know, expensive licensing from a famous band that was too expensive for most TV shows, or stock music, which was canned music. You paid a musician, they didn't own it, and they, you know, as a result, it was very poor. I basically just created a market for all the unwashed losers like me whose music they own but didn't have anywhere to go. That's so interesting. So, so do you think because of your unique marriage of being an artist, 
and also having a business education, you were able to put those together. Could you have done that without either? Well, certainly the the music exposure you needed to understand the motivation and the legalities of publishing and rights and and the complexity of those issues, which is you know still incredibly complex, and many people even in the business don't really fully understand it. I think um, the business stuff, honestly, I go I'm, I'm more credit the person who somehow spotted in my application that I probably had a business future. I'm from a long line of self-employed Sephardic Jews, you know. So we have a problem with authority going back like 3,000 years. <laughs> and and trading is probably in the blood going back many years. So it's probably more accredited with that than anything. But I will add the fact that you could never have done what I did, specifically the first time around, in any other country probably than this, too. Um, you know, I just... I did it with no money. I didn't raise money at the beginning. I got a couple of people to to help me. One of my, you know, the sort of founders of the company in that case was an old guy I'd worked in a studio, not unlike this one from down south. Uh, General counsel was a lawyer who does tons of pro bono work for jazz musicians, one of the most brilliant men I know. And we created the contract that was the backbone of Pump Audio, and it was sort of the antithesis of the contract I'd read and signed to go with Columbia Records. It was like, you own the music, it's non-exclusive, you know. Um, and so a lot of that really just came out of the ability to that people in this country will, will lean to the yes and not to the no, which in most of the rest of the world, the lean is to the no. And that difference is huge, you know. Um, as you trajectory out from a yes to a no, the difference becomes very large. So that's probably, you know, what was most important, um, you know, at the time, more than anything else. But there was a market as well, you know, like this business, who say we'll get into, but the, I would say like the great thing about Pump Audio was, was there was a buyer and a seller. I just showed up with a better and different product at about the same price. The media business, which we're in now, you know, is so much has changed even since we started. Everything is moving and, you know... It's like fighting a battle on a battlefield. You have no idea <laughs> where yeah. the sands are shifting all the time. So it makes it particularly complicated. Media is very complicated today for those reasons, I think. After you sold Pump, did you consider taking either uh, starting something? Did you always know you would start something new, or did you look around and think you might work for someone? How did that work? Yeah, you know, I when I sold the business, I was, uh, it's I, how many years ago it is? I was about 37, so eight years ago is 36, 37. And again, we'd raised very little money. I was fortunate enough towards the end of that business to be introduced to Alan Patrikov, who was just in the process of leaving Apex and starting a small venture fund of his own. And he's uh, become a, a great mentor of mine and, uh, and had a great impact on my thinking in this space because I wasn't a venture guy, I didn't know anything about so it. Alan Patrikov, really one of the grandfathers of the venture capital community. Really, you know, he's, you know, I've been doing this for. 50 years and right. as, is incredibly well-respected and renowned and a great investor. Right. And we were the first deal for this small fund, Greycroft, and, and we sold the business for very, very good multiple returns within 14 months. So luck was on our side there. Um, and But I remember even when he, using all his incredible persuasive powers, tried to get me to, to take money from him for the company and explain to me why, I remember very clearly being on vacation for a week and just being miserable thinking about whether I should take this mm. money because I have such intrinsic control problems yeah. and such intrinsic authority problems that the thought of you know the risk of introducing new people into the fold and things like that is something I always consider and I I've tried to do that in all the business I've been very lucky you know we, we have an incredible board uh, who say an incredible group of individuals they happen to be associated with incredible companies too um, but I, I didn't want to go 
I didn't. I knew I wanted to start another business, and this is another part of where the neurosis kicks in. I remember clearly lying awake after having sold, you know, Pump for a, a large amount of money, certainly by my measure, and not needing necessarily to go back to work at that time, and having these strange, you know, sort of uh, anxiety attacks, like, oh my God, what am I going to do? The children are going to leave the house in twelve or thirteen years, and I'm going to have nothing to do. You know? <laughs> so. I realize now that you, when you run a business like that tight, like I am now with your hands on the wheel, you become like a bit of, you know, a bit sort of stress disorder. You know, you need a while to basically realize that you're kind of so tightly wound, you can't make these decisions in a clear mind. And certainly next time I told my wife, you know, when I come up with the next thought, and we're going to roll right into this, give me a quick slap and I'll slow down a little bit. Um, but Just yeah, I rolled right in. some separation to clear your mind. I think you do, you know, I do think you do now, but again, I'm older now and I can see that. But, you know, when you're 35, 36, 37, you know, you just, you're not as self-aware of the, of the crazy stuff you've put yourself through. Because it was tough. I mean, you don't, you have two children under the age of five, you have no money and you have $70,000 on a credit card and, you know, six weeks away from running out of money. You become a certain level of tough and neurotic. And yeah. I will say, I've, I've told this story too recently and I think it speaks to the strength of the company. When we started Husay, and it, it was an accident of events happened sort of right after I'd, I'd sold Pump and then left Getty a year or so later, I got a call out of the blue from, from Hollywood. And I have no specific connection to Hollywood, but it was one of those classic calls was like, please hold for, you know, da, da, da. and it was, you know, the assistant calling you. And that's how I got into Husay. It was, it was someone at CAA sort of saying, hey, you know, we hear you, you know a lot about uh, talent and rights and content and that you're doing nothing and there's so much tech going on. Would you come out here and talk to us about, you know, what we might be able to do with our clients? And um, I said, sure, I had nothing to do. You know, the devil finds work for idle hands. And, and I went out there and looked at what these folks at CAA had in terms of, you know, incredible company, incredible access, incredible position, and said, hey, you know, what you guys, what your clients already are is a media business. You know, they already power billions of dollars of eyeballs in print, on television, and now, you're talking five years ago, increasingly in social two things are going to happen. They're going to start to make more of the content themselves because they're all going to move from Blackberries to iPhones. Uh, they're going to take pictures. They're going to start shooting video. That content is going to be valuable because people will look at it. And they won't just look at it on one network. They'll look at it on many networks. So there may be a chance here for us to create the first media business with talent. They provide the content. We'll provide the machinery and the sales force essentially to monetize that for them. Um, and so it was a little bit like Pump where we would, you know, We'd build a machine that would split the revenue with them, given that the content they generated was powerful. So there were similarities um, right out of the gate. So if, you're, if I'm a celebrity, and before Husay, <clears throat> and I decided yes, I want to publish a picture of myself on Facebook or Instagram, I lose the rights to that picture? Yeah, I mean, and rights is less of the issue because when we started, there was Facebook, there was just about Twitter, but almost all of my clients were on BlackBerry. So just the idea of taking a picture and sharing it was already only five years ago. I mean, right. It seems like it's 50 changed. years ago. Mm -hmm. um, so that there was nervousness just about that at all. Um, it was more about the monetization of the content, the ability mm. to retain some of that power. It was never about preventing Facebook from running its ad business or Twitter from running its ad business. It was all about, can't some of this value be retained by my clients? I mean, Facebook now, an incredible company, done an incredible job. You know, it'll do $20 billion in ad revenue. 
I'm sure that 5% at least of the engagement on Facebook is driven by celebrity or celebrity photos or celebrity video. I mean, I feel that those people are contributing premium content on multiple networks, and they deserve a portion of the value that content yeah, generates. It's well, their audience and multiple networks. And so you can see who's been most damaged by this is the Us Weeklies, People magazines. And if you watch what's gone on with their circulation and ad revenue, it has fallen as celebrities have taken control of their own personas. They don't need to be on the cover of People. They have multiple orders of, of people circulation in just following them on Instagram. Yeah, and I think that's what I underestimated is is <laughs> the whole media universe has changed, right? So the, that's true, and it's also true that obviously people just don't value print as much as a medium, as a consumer, or as an advertiser. And obviously the incredible scale that Facebook and LinkedIn and Twitter and these companies have achieved, the ability to target, these are incredible platforms. Um, and when we began Who Say?, the idea was fairly simple. We created an application for talent, a unique application invite only, that would allow them to harness some of the power of this content. My original idea was to monetize that in what then was the traditional digital way, right? You would create traffic and you would sell advertising. But I realized a couple of years in, even though we were driving, long before BuzzFeed, we were driving 25 million uniques out of Facebook, out of Twitter, based on the, the celebrities we were working with, I realized nobody needed another website with banners on it. I mean, they're just, you know, they don't need that today, even though there are still some of them. Why that stuff still happens, you know, is about reach and scope. But I just knew that wasn't an effective solution for us to power both a good business and one that would actually generate value for the celebrity. Without creative arts, would you have had this kind of access to the celebrities? Absolutely not. No, they were they were awesome. Even there, and I consider them a co-founder in the sense that they gave me the education. And I did move to Los Angeles for a year, which I also thought would be fun. And, and they gave me incredible access to learn the space and learn about and, and learn about how Hollywood really works, which I now know far too much about. Um, and access to talent and learn. And I think, again, um, you know, in my experience with music and with with Hollywood, you know, I always feel like the artists just because of the infrastructure built around them, they always get the short end of the stick. Um, you know, there's very little example in American history where the artists are fairly or well represented by organizations. One of the unique examples is SAG, which, of course, the irony of which is that Ronald Reagan was the most successful, really, runner of SAG. Um, and even though he became this great Republican, he was a fantastic union leader um, and actually negotiated uh, for our actors to get a piece of residuals and all sorts of other things. So uh, that organization is probably the only one I can think of that represents any kind of artist very effectively because if you didn't have SAG, think about it. Do you think actors would do movies for free? They'd probably pay to be in the movies, never right. get paid. Well, speaking of that, this is, I mean, even since you launched this company, the who is a celebrity has changed. Absolutely. And the ability to become a celebrity and the fact that there are, you can be a Vine star, an Instagram star, and they have equal if not greater followings than oh, yes. some of the traditional celebrities. So how does a service like yours that, that depends on having the celebrity access, how do you deal in a world where just about everyone is a celebrity or could be one? Yeah, well, because we lead in our product, and again, it's really the last couple of years, it's just in the last 12 months, it's just taken off with the demand is, is showing up that we lead with a creative idea first so we don't pitch individuals we don't pitch people we pitch an idea and then we cast the right person into it so absolutely you're completely right and I can tell you for a fact we just did a campaign for a retailer where the celebrity in the content was a dog 
and the dog has more Instagram followers than many, many celebrities. Uh, and and Sir Charles Barkley, of course, as well as the name of the dog, so one of my favourite basketball players, um, but is the name of the dog, and a couple hundred thousand followers on Instagram, and an incredibly successful campaign, because, as we all know, dogs do very well on the internet. Um, but, yes, I mean, there is, there is, as far as I'm concerned, we have seven billion people in our network of talent. If, if there's anybody who in business or finance or uh, sports or entertainment or uh, pets, fluences, um, is the right person for the idea, for the brand, for the, for the reach, then we'll put them in it. So what's next for you? Well, more of the same. Uh, I want to, you know, hire another 30 salespeople. We've tripled the sales force this year. So we're just we're on a roll in terms of offering something that people um, are warm to and buying and we're delivering great results. And for me, it's growth now. So we're in a growth phase, and I'm trying to stay super focused on that. We are thankful for Steve stopping by Breaking the Mold studio. Uh, we will be right back with our wrap-up, but uh, certainly feel free to follow us on at Roth Evan or at Dan Roth, and let us know what you thought of Steve. Breaking the Mold wants your feedback. Please visit our iTunes show page and tell us what you think about the show. Now, back to your hosts. We're back. Breaking the mold. Follow-up session with Steve Ellis. I, you know, I've known Steve for a long time. A couple things surprised me. His patriotism. Did not expect to hear the first words out of his mouth is love and respect for this country and what he accomplished as a result of the U.S. being a place where people lean yes versus lean no. Yeah, that lean yes idea was something that I hadn't really heard before, that it is easier to start a business here, not because the business environment is better here, but because people want to help you exactly. or want to get in on things and want to see you succeed. Exactly. And, and that came after essentially 10 years after college of him being broke, right? I mean, he was that classic starving artist where I got to imagine a lot more people lean no than lean yes to how he could, you know, make enough money to be able to support his wife and his kids. And yet something flipped as a result of now two successful companies. And he sees the world a little differently now. What I love, too, is that he still believes that he is fighting the man. Yeah, and totally. Meanwhile, talking about CPMs and <laughs> ad deals and hand-holding celebrities, like he is the man, absolutely a hundred percent now. But uh, he's still part of him is that rocker internally who is, you know, absolutely on the outside of the system. Fighting the system, fighting the man. Yeah. What we need to do next is get somebody that works actually at Who Say for Steve, who says that yeah, I can't stand working for that guy. He's just the, you know, he makes life miserable for us. It's all about <laughs> rules and regulations with him. Um, authority it's like a hierarchy at this company yeah but he's he's made it work and I, I thought you know as far as lessons learned like it's kind of the the perfect resume you know which is a very smart guy who's very thorough who has talent musical talent who saw an opportunity and then had the you know wherewithal to actually follow through with it that I don't know like you know, maybe there's an equivalent in technology. Steve Jobs needed to, Bill Gates needed to build their own computer before seeing the problem with it. Or Michael Dell's a better example. You know, like, you know, and I'll tell you, just in my bias, is a lot of guys who work in private equity who are funders of these businesses, but who think of themselves as good as operators, as the actual CEOs who they put in place to run the company, 
who never are because they haven't actually been in the game. Right. Yeah, certainly. You certainly see what works and what doesn't work. And I think the other part also is uh, he clearly has intense hustle. I mean, he yeah. is not afraid of going studio to studio to sell the pure box to, to start. He talks about moving out to L.A., about getting doing these deals and being on the phone with people constantly. I think that hustle is in him, and I don't think that can be taught. Well, it's it's not just hustle. He is a natural salesperson because he believes in his product. He is disarming. He's not there to tell you how smart and good and cool he is. Um, but it did remind me a little of like the door-to-door -door Encyclopedia Britannica, you know, salesman. From the pure days. You mean from the pure... From Old Pump. Days. I'm sorry, for Pump. I mean, for Pump. pump. Yeah. For Pump. For Pump. For Pump. pump. Well... But but what you need to do as a first-time entrepreneur is have that shoe leather. I'm going to go out and get and go after it, and then then you think it was interesting that then he was just the receiver of the idea. He didn't come up with the idea for who say he got a call from CAA right. and and followed it, and at that point had the experience to know what worked and what wasn't going right. to work. Yep, absolutely, very interesting. Evan, thanks for having me back on the show. I hope I get an invite again. As long as you continue to be my brother, which I give it a 50-50 chance, you'll be back here for episode 14 on Breaking the Mold. We hope to hear from all of you at Roth Evan, at Dan Roth. Follow us on LinkedIn as well. Yes, sir. We'll be back very soon. Thank you. You've been listening to Breaking the Mold. Let us know what you think of the show via Twitter at BTM Show, through email at btmshow at icloud.com, and at our iTunes show page. Breaking the Mold is recorded at Mixopolis in New York City.